Let's begin, shall we? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for another opportunity to come to worship before you. Please bless us now as we continue our studies. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at today the immobility of God's word. You know, when you think about the crisis that's going to come, we need to anchor our souls into something. And it's not going to be the things of this world. You know, the Bible talks about a story Jesus gave, how that he talked about a parable of a man building his house upon a rock and the other upon the sand. And when the winds blew and the storm came and the waves beat upon it, you know, immediately on the house that was built upon the sand, it fell. But the house that was built upon the rock, it stood firm. And, of course, the analogy there that Jesus is trying to convey is that unless we're built on him, on a firm foundation of God's word, we're not going to make it. And so that's really what I want to talk about, the very essence, the concept of these things. And so we're going to look at that. If you'll turn with me now as we continue on in our studies, we're going to look here at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, if you turn there with me in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I'm going to look at here uh, verses 1 to 8, verses 1 to 8. And uh, let's turn there, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Now, if you'll notice the first word of, of Hebrews 6, says, therefore. And so it, there, there is a conclusion based on a previous statement, you know. And so in order to understand the principle of the concept that he's talking about, therefore, uh, you know, leaving the principal doctrines of Christ, let us go on to perfection, you've got to realize what he's saying prior and so when you look back here in Hebrews chapter 5, you begin to realize that what uh, the Apostle Paul, and by the way, Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Don't let anybody fool you over that. And um, uh, the Apostle Paul is trying to help the, the, the Jews understand the Melchizedek priesthood uh, uh, versus the Levitical priesthood. There's two different kinds. Even though the Levitical priesthood was a foreshadowing of what was to come under the uh, earthly dispensation of the sanctuary uh, on this earth, still, nonetheless, they're two different kinds of ministries. One is temporary. The other is, is, uh, is for eternity, meaning the results, the end concept. In other words, the earthly sanctuary, the Levitical priesthood, was never to last forever. So it was temporary. Um, when you look at the Levitical priesthood, it's earthly. The Melchizedek priesthood is heavenly. The Levitical priesthood had an earthly sanctuary. The Melchizedek priesthood had a heavenly sanctuary. And the, the Levitical priesthood had sacrifices that could not bring perfection because you can't redeem sin through the blood of animals. Uh, they were simply types pointing forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the Melchizedek priesthood, Jesus Christ died once and for all, meaning he put an end to all sacrificial sa- systems. And that sacrifice was full and complete paying for the penalty of sin. That's why we don't need to go to Jerusalem three times a year and offer sacrifices to, to the, in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why we don't keep the feast days. That's why we don't observe certain things under the uh, dispensation of Levitical priesthood. But they all passed away and gave way to the Melchizedek. So what he's talking about here um, is how that, if you look with me, for example, um, uh, verse... 
Well, let's go to verse 10, and it says, And called the, uh, of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, being Jesus, in other words. Jesus was called after the order of Melchizedek. Of whom, meaning Jesus, uh, we have many things to say, meaning the ministration of Christ the, as the Melchizedek priesthood. Hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Now listen very carefully. It's not that Paul is saying what I want to explain to you, you can't understand. He's saying what I'd like to share with you, even though it's deep, is because the problem doesn't lie in me communicating the word to you. The problem lies within you. You're dull of hearing. He's speaking to the Jews. Remember, primarily the book of Hebrews was written for Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. It's not called Gentiles. It's the book of Hebrews. Because you have to realize this book, by the way, was written in 64... Uh, A.D., uh, which means it's only six years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, remember, you've got to understand, you've got to go back and think almost like a Jew. At this time, what were they clinging to? The earthly temple. Why do you think in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus took them up to the Mount of Olives there in the temple, and he showed them the temple. And he said, not one stone shall be left upon another. To which the disciples said, this, you know, they were so staggered at this. They said, well, tell us, Lord, when shall these things be? What should be the sign of thy coming at the end of the world? In other words, when they heard that the temple was going to be annihilated, they immediately equated it being the end of the world, meaning that the temple will last until the coming of Christ. They had a false conception about the earthly sanctuary. They thought it would last forever and ever. And the reason they believed that was because in back in the, De- the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and other places, but particularly Leviticus. If you go back and study the promises that God made to the children of Israel, he even said that Jerusalem, if you're faithful, says, and, and Deuteronomy is very yeah, big on this as well. If you're faithful, he says, you will be uh, 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 the people forever. In other words, and, you're, and Jerusalem will last forever. And he does make those promises. But were they always obedient? Did they fail in their covenant relationship with God? Remember what Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27 says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, right? To, to make an end of sin, to bring in everlasting rights and so forth. In other words, God said, I'm going to give you 490 more years. That's all you're getting. If you don't make things right at the end of these 490 years, I'm cutting you off. And I'm going to take the gospel that I... Gave to you to be responsible for as stewards. And I'm going to give it to somebody else. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees there. He said, and the kingdom of God is taken away from you, given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. He took the kingdom of God away from the Jews in that they are no longer the repositories of truth. In other words, they are no longer the representatives of God on this earth to proclaim the three angels message. They are no longer the representatives. They're not in that covenant relationship with God anymore. And so the Jews had a misconception about the temple. They thought it would last forever. So when Jesus said, not one stone should be left upon another, of course, this took them by surprise. They were just flabbergasted. That's why they said, well, this must be the end of the world. It's got to be. And so what is Paul doing here? In the book of Hebrews, he's trying desperately to teach the Jews You've got to stop uh, this, this false hope of yours in regard to the temple and the earthly ministry. Remember, 
Read Great Controversy, The Desire of Ages, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Do you know that they were still sacrificing right up to the destruction? They were still making offerings and, and ministering in the temple right up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So what happened, friends, Paul here is, in the entire book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews, is trying to teach the Jews to got to get your eyes off an earthly ministry and put it towards a heavenly. You've got to stop trusting in earthly priests and put it into the heavenly priest. You've got to stop real, uh, believing in earthly sacrifices and accept the heavenly sacrifice that it was given to you by Jesus Christ. And so, in other words, it's a book of contrast. He's showing you. Earthly, heavenly, earthly, heavenly. And he keeps going back and forth. In this particular case, he said, look, I want to talk to you about Jesus in relation to the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, it's difficult to understand to some extent. Problem is, though, the real problem lies with you. You're the problem. You're the reason why I can't explain it to you. Look, I could share many things with you and same could be with uh, you with me. But if I have no interest in it, if I just don't care what you're saying, I'm not going to learn. No matter how good of a teacher you may be, no matter how practical your approach may be, you're just not going to accept it. And so he says, you, you're dull of hearing. He said, for when the time you ought to be teachers, this ought to be the time. Of all the time, you should be the teachers. You should be instructing people. But look what he goes on to say. You have need that one teach you again. Uh, be what? The first principles of the oracles. God. Notice the first principles. First principles. Of the oracles of God and are become such as need of milk and not strong meat. In other words, it's bad enough that you're not the teachers. You should be. He says, the problem is this. I got to go all the way back to ground zero. I can't even, I can't even start on point two. You're not even that mature. I got to go all the way back. And he says the first principles. I got to go all the way back and then start from there and teach you now. And um, he says, he goes on, he says, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. By the way, that's a rebuke. He's rebuking them. He's telling them, you know what? You, you can't handle meat. Uh, you're on milk. And even then, it's watered down. Uh, he said, for you're a babe, spiritually speaking. You're immature. But strong meat belongs to them who are full age, maturity, spiritual maturity. Even those who by reason of use have their own senses, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Spiritual discernment to understand they're fully mature, they know right from wrong. See, in other words, to be a teacher, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you this, not everyone's qualified to be a teacher. One thing to be a teacher, one thing to be, you better know this message and you better know right from wrong in regard to this message. Why? Well, you're the teacher. You're supposed to instruct the class. You're supposed to be the one knowing when error is taught. Excuse me, sorry, I apologize, sir, but all due respect, that's not correct. Let me share with you why. Boom. You've got to be skilled in the Word of God. That's what Paul says. You need to know right from wrong. How can you sit up there and teach people when you don't know what you're talking about if you can't even figure out what's right from wrong? And so you need to be skilled. By the way, that goes true for the ministers and elders and deacons, leaders in the church. you got to be a leader, dear friends. Remember, an elder is not a hymn, hymn reader, right? That's not an elder. Anybody can read a hymn number. 
I don't need, a, you know, an elder to do that. Elders are to run the church as, long, as well as the other leaders. Now what? So now he comes to this. So you should be mature, discerning right from wrong. He then goes, therefore, based on what I've now said, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. What's he talking about, the principles? He just told you back in verse 12, the first principles. What's he saying to them? Therefore, leaving the principles, the first principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on to perfection. What's he saying? Let's put it in 21st century vernacular. What's he saying? Let's, let's forget the, let's, let's, let's move on. We've dealt with this. Let's move forward. In other words, let's advance. How can you possibly grow in your walk with Christ unless you're advancing? Neutrality and stagnation do not equate to victory. If an army is in the field of conflict and they find themselves stagnated, where they are neutralized, I can tell you it's only a matter of time before the enemy sieges them, surrounds them, and then sieges them, and then, then it's only a matter of time you will surrender. You will not survive. You can't survive. Nobody survives the siege. Once you surround and cut off all means of communication, lifeline, food, etc., it's only a matter of time. So uh, in the spiritual life, we must always be advancing. Now, look, you may take three steps forward. One person may take one step forward. It doesn't matter how far advanced you may be in regard to your walk as long as you're advancing. You see, Paul talks about running a race. There in Hebrews 12. And one thing you got to remember is this. The race that Paul is talking about is not a sprint. It's a marathon race. You understand? I'm talking a marathon. You're not running a 100-yard dash. You're going 26-mile runs. And that's a long-distance run, which means you got to pace yourself. you got to learn that there's going to be times during that race you're not going to feel like continuing because you realize I've got another 15 more miles to go. Listen to me. In the Olympics or in competition from an earthly standpoint, it makes all the difference in the world who, go, who, who crosses that line first and second. All the difference in the world. But in the Christian fight for salvation, it's not a matter of who finishes the, 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 crosses the line first. That's not the issue. The issue is whether you will cross the line at all. That's the issue. That's why Jesus said, when I come back, shall I find faith on this earth? He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. He's talking about endurance. Look, I've, I've, my philosophy is, is very simple. I don't care if you beat me through the gates of the new city, Jerusalem. I don't care. What do I care whether you're before me as long as I pass through? You say, somebody say, I beat you. I'm going to say, I don't care. My crown's just as good as yours, and I got eternal life. I could care less if you beat me. This is not a competition in regard to you and I as to who finishes first. The competition is in regard to you. Can you endure? Can you persevere? Can you move forward in your Christian life? You see? And this is what Paul is saying. We need to move forward, advance. All right? Look what he goes on. Let's go now to Hebrews 6, 
and uh, continue in verse 1. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance of dead works and of, of faith toward God. Meaning what? Friends, once you've advanced, once you've moved forward, don't keep going back to the same old things again. How else are you going to advance if you keep going back? You know, it's look, dear friends, you, Paul is saying if we expect to move on, advance towards perfection, we've got to leave behind. He doesn't mean abandon, capitulate. That's not what he's talking about, a capitulation. He's talking about, look, once you've been baptized, you don't need to keep getting rebaptized. Move on, keep going. Once you've learned the state of the dead, move on to another one. Second coming. Once you've learned that, go on to the status. Once you've learned that, the state of the dead. Once you've learned, keep moving. You don't have to keep restudying them as if you don't know them. Once you've understood certain things and once you get victory over something, keep moving. And this is one of the most important things we have to remember as Christians. It doesn't mean in life we don't make mistakes. And I'm not talking about sinning. Uh, although some mistakes may be a sin, it all depends on the nature of what has been committed. But nonetheless, you've got to realize, dear friends, you, uh, in this marathon race, I may make a mistake, and I may even sin. I didn't say you had to sin. I, remember, friends, you can have complete, full victory over sin. Jude 24, 25, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. He's able, not you. He is. He's able, you're not able. But what does Paul say in Philippians? We read it today in Sabbath school, Philippians 4.13. Right? What's it say? I can do what? All things through Christ, which, which is an archaic word, means who? Who strengthens me? Who strengthens me to have victory? Jesus. I can do all things, not some things, not most things, all things. Even live a victorious life. 1 Corinthians 15.57 now, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Friends, victory is a gift, just like faith is a gift, just like repentance is a gift. And you get it from Jesus. What did Jesus say in John chapter 8 to Mary Magdalene when she was caught in adultery? She says, woman, where are thine accusers? She says, I, I have none. She, he, Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, you and I can live a victorious life in Jesus. That is possible. And what happened there, of course, in, um, uh, in Matthew, uh, I believe it's chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, where Peter walks on water. With Jesus' help, you and I can do the impossibility. See, it's impossible of, our, of ourselves to live without sinning. That's impossible. You can't do that. I don't care how hard you try. But with Jesus' help, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, he will do in me a work that you cannot believe. He is in the business of doing the impossibility. Friends, he's God. If God cannot do the impossibility, he ceases to be God. Now, so look, Paul is saying we need to move forward. We cannot keep going back, dear friends. We must grow in Christ then he goes on to say, verse 2 of the doctrines of baptism, laying on hands, resurrection, dead, eternal, eternal judgment. So he lists several, several of the foundational truths that we must have. But we must move forward beyond that now. He said, and this we will do if God permit. In other words, God willing. For it is impossible for those, now listen, who were once in light. Now he gives an analogy of something. I want you to listen very carefully. Remember, Paul's talking about what? Advancing. 
moving forward. He said, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Now stop right there. Notice these people have experienced being born again. And they've experienced the world to come. Paul talks about when we receive the baptism of the Spirit at our converted uh, conversion, we are given an earnest of the down payment of heaven. You know, that word earnest means a, 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 a little down payment of what's coming. When you go shopping, sometimes you put, a, you put a down payment on something to hold it. And you are telling the buyer or the seller, excuse me, you're telling the seller, I, my word is good, so good, here's money, here it is, I'm guaranteeing I'm coming back. And I'm going to pay the rest on this. Okay? I'm putting a guarantee down. And so it reinforces your words. It validates what you're saying is true. When you are given the Holy Spirit at conversion, you're given an earnest of heaven. In other words, you're getting just a little taste of what it's going to be like when we get there. Just a taste, a little... God, God is saying to you, want, want taste a little bit of heaven? Here you go. Yeah, you go taste a little heaven. That's just a little taste of what's coming. And so Paul is saying here that uh, these people who were uh, 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 who were once enlightened have tasted that and the world to come. It says if they should fall away, renewed them again to unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Stop right there. Now. Why can't these people be renewed? He says it's impossible. Why can't they be? You mean God's mercy is such that um, that we can't be forgiven for our sins? What's the problem with these people? Notice there's a key word here in verse 6. There is a key word as to why these people cannot be led to repentance. He says, if they f- shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Meaning, if these people fall away, we can't bring them back to repentance. Why? Seeing, here we go, here's the key. Seeing they, underscore the next word, crucify. That means present tense and ongoing. Do you understand? It's continual. Meaning, dear friends, they're crucifying Christ afresh. Not just in the past, but presently, and they continue to do so. Why can't they be led to repentance? Because they refuse to repent. Look, if you don't want to change your ways, then you're not going to change your ways. God's not going to force you. No one can make you. If you don't want to stop sitting on a particular issue, and I don't care what it is, but if you don't want to stop doing something, then friend, guess what? You're not going to have the victory. I want to, I tell you, I, I did a crusade in uh, Keokuk, Iowa. Or was it Cahokia, Missouri? One of those places. Uh, you go, uh, this place was so far in the boondocks. I mean, I'm going to tell you, uh, we drove down the road, and Indian burial grounds, we could see the ancient Indian, Indian burial grounds. Still there. Sacred land to the Native Americans. You, nobody could touch it. It was all, you know, sacred land. But you could drive right down the road. You see all these burial grounds. And of course, Keokuk is a Native American name, as you can imagine. Cahokia, that's another Native. 
But the, the point is, I went down to do a crusade for the Ah Missouri Conference. And um, a woman came to me and she said, can I talk to you? I said, well, sure. And she said, I, 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 you could tell she was very stressed in her face, you know, very worried, very. So I said, look, let me, let me greet, or greet everybody goodbye. Let me just say goodbye to everybody. You, you wait here and we'll, we'll talk. And so we, everybody was left, we sat, we talked. And I said, look, I said, well, how can I help you? She says, you know, I've got a real serious problem with smoking, she said. i got a real serious problem. And I said, all right. I said, uh, I said why, why don't you explain your situation? And she started to proceed, and I said, well, why, you know, how she couldn't stop it. She tried, she tried. I said, why don't you tell me how you try to stop smoking, okay? You, you, you tell me how that happens, all right? So she said, well, what I would do is she said, I, I would take them, she said, I'd crush them with my hands, throw them in the trash bin, I'd soak them in the bucket of water, throw them in, in, in there, she said, uh, I'd destroy them, put, burn them all up, you know, in the fireplace, whatever, she said, but I would always keep maybe one or two of them and put in a closet just in case. I said, hope, stop right there. I said, Paul says you're not to make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I said, the problem is you're failing to, you're planning to fail. You're not planning for victory. You're planning for failure. And I said, uh, you know, so I said, look, you've got to make a complete break. Some people in their Christian life, what, listen, friends. You don't want to know why so many people can't have victory or don't have victory. It's not because they can't have it. They're just choosing to fail. In other words, she didn't really believe God was going to keep her from sinning. So she just had a little safety net, just in case. You can't do that. Either you believe what God says or you don't. You either embrace what he says in his word or you don't. And so... You see, Paul is saying these people cannot be brought to repentance is because, dear friends, they're choosing to continue the life of rebellion against God. You can't force, as we say, a horse to water if they don't want to go. You can't make them drink. So this is why they are in this situation. Now, at this point in verses 7 and 8, uh, I want to show you is an illustration he gives. Look at verse 7 now. He's going to illustrate something. It says, The earth which drinks in the rain that comes often upon it and brings forth herbs, meat, or fitting for them by whom it was dressed receives the blessings of God. So he's giving the analogy of, of nature. Right here comes rain, falls on the earth, the plants, the, 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 the flowers, the trees. They bud and bring forth fruit, proper for the occasion based on what the rain has done, right? So, but look at verse 8. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. He gives two analogy or an analogy based on two types of people. One receives the refreshing and brings forth fruit appropriate for the occasion. The other, they manifest what? Thorns and thistles. Right? And what are they good for? And what does Paul say? You only have two choices. There's only two choices you have. You either embrace the blessings of the Lord and manifest the fruit fitting for the occasion, or you choose the life or path of thorns and thistles. 
which means in the end, you're going to be burned. And let, let me put it to you another way, this analogy. You either choose heaven or you choose hell. That's what Paul is saying. There's only two roads for you to take. You don't have a third option. It's one or the other. And he's telling the, the Jews here and the, all of us here, you've got to make up your mind. What do you want, heaven or hell? If you want heaven, then live and act like it. Forget the things that in the past, in other words, you've already laid the foundation, you've been baptized, you know about the Sabbath and all these other things. doesn't mean, again, you don't continue to study these things, but you have already know what they are. Let's move on to deeper issues. Let's get into the meat. Let's go deeper. Let's go further in our experience, you see. Broaden the horizon, as it were. Or neutralize yourself, digress, and then ultimately be lost. There's the only two choices you got. So, now, <clears throat> let's, 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 look, uh, let's continue on here, make sure I get this right. <clears throat> oh, let me read you a couple of statements here. Uh, this is uh, uh, 5T, page 72. It says, as Jesus viewed the state of the professed followers today, he sees base ingratitude, hollow formalism, hypocritical insincerity, and pharisaical pride and apostasy. This is how Jesus views his church today. That's not a flattering commentary, is it? God help us, dear friends. God help us. All right, now. Um, okay, Review and Herald, August 19. 1901, there is with some a constant danger of becoming unsettled in the faith by the desire for originality. They wish to find some new and strange truth to present or to have a new message to bring to the people. But such a desire is the snare of the enemy to captivate the mind and lead them away from the truth. In other words, what Jesus is talking about here in verses 1 to 8 is let's not fall back into the apostasy of the past. Let's move forward, you see. And what do you find in some cases, in this particular case of this statement here, is you find some people in the church craving for originality. Listen, we don't need originality. We need the truth. But some people, unfortunately, that you know, it's all about them. Look at me. Look at me. And, uh, and uh, so we need to be very careful. Very dangerous, dear friends. And unfortunately, we've got many people like that today. 5T, page 305. There is, a human, there is in human nature a tendency to run to extremes and, uh, from, and from one form to, uh, to extreme to another, entirely opposite. Many are fanatics. They are consumed by the fiery zeal which is mistaken for religion, but character is the true test of discipleship. And this is another danger you have in the church today, fanaticism. And she's saying we all have something in the mechanisms of humanity, somehow in our DNA, we all have a tendency to be fanatics. Just some are more pronounced in their fanaticism than others. So it's very hard, and it's a challenge to be balanced. Look, friends, if you stop resisting, you will sin, right? You stop resisting temptation, you will sin. And uh, if you stop surrendering your life to God, you will uh, unleash the fanatical tendencies that you naturally have. The test of a Christian is to maintain a balance. It's not hard to be fanatical on the right or fanatical on the left. That's not, a, that's not hard. What's hard is to maintain a, a balanced perspective. Can you be a balanced Christian, not being fanatical, don't go to extremes. And, and, I, and please remember, but the, uh, balance in your perspective in regard to the Christian walk is not an excuse for you to do something you know it is not right. 
You understand? Don't try to justify sin under the umbrella of you being bound. Being balanced does not excuse sin. And again, in the final analysis, let's remember something, dear friends. Let's remember this. I told you this before. If you're not honest with yourself, you can forget about having any type of, an, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a chance of getting to heaven. The key, the key to, to mastering uh, victory in Jesus is not only our total reliance upon Jesus, but more importantly, dear friends, if I'm not honest with myself in relation to that surrender, how can I surrender? If I think myself to be okay, why would I go to Jesus? Look, this is why Jesus said, you know, only sick people go see doctors. Right? A man, if you think you're well, everything is okay, why would you go to a doctor? That don't make no sense. <laughs> Rather foolish. And Jesus comes and says, you're, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You need the gospel message. Most people say, well, I don't need them. I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Problem is they don't realize they're sick. And so fanaticism, extremism, is one of the biggest problems in Christianity today. She says in Second Selected Messages, page 30, fanaticism, once started and left unchecked, is as a hard, hard to quench as a fire in which has obtained hold of a building. And this is why it's important, leaders in the church... Listen, if you let fanaticism run wild in your church, I'm telling you, you won't have a church very long. You'll have, this church will go berserk with every kind of idea, and it's this person, that person. And like I say, you've got to nip it in the bud. You've got to nip it in the bud. Look, we need to advance in our walk. Let's not go back and digress into apostasy. Let's move forward. All right. Let's look at verses 9 to 12. Verses 9 to 12. Look what it says here. 9 to 12. He says, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. So in other words, based on what he just said, brethren, I've got better things than you, for, for you than this example. I've got better, you know, my hope and expectation for you, much bigger than this. Much, much. I want better things for you. He then goes on to say this. Uh, the things that accompany salvation uh, through uh, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Notice, dear friends, what kind of people do we have here? We've got a working people. Are they working for Jesus? He just commended them, didn't he? Didn't he say they're doing labor? They, they, uh, forget their work and labor of love? Are they working for Jesus? Actively, you better believe. We've got an active church here. A good group of people. But he's warning them. That's the key. There is a, a shot across the bow, as we say. You shoot that across the bow. Well, it's a warning shot. Danger. Don't keep going down this path because something will happen to you. He says, uh, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work of, and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now notice, do minister. They can, they're still doing it. Actively engaged. We desire that every one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope unto the end. Notice where's the key here. Look at the, the key phrase, to the end. It's not enough to start. It's not enough to keep going, at least in terms of the progress of the present state. you got to finish it. He said, and that's what he's burdened over. His burden in this chapter is that they 
Don't give up. That they persevere. Don't fall back into apostasy. Move forward and advance. And please, please finish what you started. Don't give up. He says in verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them. Notice, but followers of them. Well, we're going to talk about who them, who these people are. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Stop right there. He's talking about a group of people in the Bible prior to them, prior to these people, who are fitting examples of what it means to start the race and finish it. Because who these people he's referring to have received the inheritance of the promise. How about, for example, who can give me some examples in the Bible? Prior to this, prior to this, who received the inheritance of the promise, who received the gift of eternal life? Enoch, Moses, Elijah, Isaac. There's a whole slew of people, aren't there? A whole slew of them. You can, why do you think Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Fame of Faith? That doesn't mean they're the only ones, but he's given a list of those who inherited the promise. Now, what he's saying is very interesting. I want you to notice, he's saying to him, or to these people, he said, look, God hasn't forgotten the good work you've done. He knows what you're doing. He knows that. God hasn't forgotten. But I've got better things for you. He said, the thing I'm concerned about is whether you can persevere, finish to the end. They said, that's my concern. He says, and... He says, and there are those who have, have gone before us who have inherited the promise. They have eternal life. There is a crown Paul says, just before his death. He says, but he says, you know, my time has come. He says, but there is laid up for me a crown of life. He knew he was going to get the, the inheritance. So, what is he saying? He's saying to these people, if you want to learn how to be victorious... If you want to learn how to endure, study the lives of those who have gone before who did finish the race. You follow me? Find out what they did in order to finish the race, then apply those principles to your life. And you too will finish the race. You've got to study their lives. That's why studying Bible biographies is a blessing. It's a joy to study the life of Joseph, David, Solomon, and we can go down the, just the list of people, one after the other. It's because what we're trying to look at, look, every man and woman in the Bible that we could mention that has finished the race, all of them were sinners in need of a savior. All of them sinned against the Almighty in some form or fashion. But they learned through the lesson of life by total reliance upon God and the promises in which he gave that they too may overcome. And they did overcome. They have the crown of life waiting for them, whether they're in the grave waiting for the resurrection of life or they've already been translated into heaven. They already have it. David's in the grave. He's waiting for the resurrection. God can tell you what right now. And everybody who's read their Bible knows this. He's coming up in the resurrection of life. The crown is his. It can't be taken from him. It's his. He will be in heaven. All right, so the question then, let's just take, you say, all right, well, then how did David 
seal his fate for eternity. Now, this guy was an immoral degenerate. You ever study his life? Yeah. This man willfully lusted after another man's wife, and he tried to you know, connive his way into this. And, uh, of course, when she told him that she told, by the way, I got, I'm bearing your child, he panicked. And he said, you know, well, uh, maybe you ought to get, related, you know, get together with your husband. Try very desperately. He wouldn't go, would he? Because he was a soldier, faithful. And the thing is, you know, here's a man that loved David so much so, he would not leave his post. He was that committed. David was a man who allowed the passions of the flesh to rule his mind and commit heinous crimes. But I'll tell you this. You go to Solomon. You go to Samson. You go to, you go, uh, uh, I mean, obviously Daniel's life, we see nothing but, I mean, we don't see anything wrong, not, but though, but he did sin. All have sinned, come short of God's glory. But the point is, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Joseph, whether it's the extreme end of immorality such as Solomon, David, Samson, they were all three immoral individuals. Uh, uh, um, Manasseh was another degenerate. Uh, uh, but, at, but they all overcame, all of them. No matter who you... They, so you have to ask yourself, well then, how did they overcome? What did they do? What, what's the secret to their life? And when I discover that, how do I apply it to me? In other words, how does it apply to me personally? How can I use that to my advantage to overcome? And so this is what Paul is saying. We need to learn from those who have gone before. And, uh, and so we need to persevere. Now, let's look. Um, uh, let's see. Hang on here. Let's look. Um, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you, we're going to look at one life. Let me see if I can find here. Yeah. Okay, we got it. We're going to look at the life of Jacob. Just one. I'm not going to look at but, but just to show you something. Now, we all know the story of Jacob. At least we should. I, I would, I'm taking some liberty here. And Jacob, of course, the night of his wrestling, there in Genesis 32, Jacob was going to meet his brother Esau. Remember, he stole the birthright with the help of his mother, lying to his father. Um, but had he trusted God, God would have still given him that birthright. Um, but he didn't trust God, did he? No, he didn't. And so this caused a lot of problems. So uh, let's just take a quick look at the life of, of, of Jacob. I want to read you a statement from the Pen of Inspiration. And this is coming from Story of Redemption, page 99. I want you to listen very carefully. Jacob's earnest, persevering wrestling with the angel should be an example for Christians. So here's a perfect, this is what we're talking about. Study his life, snapshot those examples, then make the application. Uh, should be an example for Christians. Jacob prevailed because, here we go, he was persevering and determined. So two key ingredients in your Christian walk. Are you persevering? Are you determined? All right? One thing to persevere. But the key ingredient to persevere is you've got to be determined. I want that thing so bad. I don't care what i got to do to get it. In the world, in the secular world, the means by which they, 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 they use to achieve the objective is, is, is this, it, is, uh, it means nothing to them. In other words, the end justifies the means. They lie, cheat, steal, murder. It doesn't matter. They, that's what they want. They'll get it. David wanted Bathsheba. He had, his, he had her husband killed. 
secular earthly approach. He was determined. I'm going to have her. And he, and he did it, but he didn't hear how. So here we have Jacob, and he knows that in order to have victory, I've got to be determined. I'm so determined to have the crown of life, I've got to figure out how to do it. I don't care. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I've got to surrender this? Fine. Get rid of it. I've got to give up that? Fine. Get rid of it. Uh, you want me to do what? Change the way I dress a certain Yeah, fine. Boom, that's gone. What else, God? What else? Whatever I, what do I have to do? I'm so determined. I don't care what it is. I'm going to do it. Do we have that kind of determination? See, in Revelation chapter 14, the Bible talks about the, the 144,000. They follow the Lamb, what? Whithersoever he goes. That's determination. Are you so determined to obtain the crown of life you're willing to sacrifice anything and everything to get? And will you persevere? You may be determined for a period of time, but the question is, will you be determined until you obtain the, uh, the object of your affection? All who desire the blessings of God as did Jacob and will lay hold of the promises as he did and be as earnest and persevering as he was will succeed as he succeeded. These are key ingredients. This is what it's going to take. There is so little exercise of true faith and so little of the weight of truth resting upon many professed believers because they are indolent. And I had to put that in there. I just wanted to underscore lazy. In spiritual things. They're lazy. You ever see this commercial on TV? just came out. Uh, I forgot what the, 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 uh, the company that produced it. But it's about a little boy and a grandma. And the little boy's playing his games, watching TV. He's a lazy little boy. And he uses his cell phone to call up his grandmother. The mother's, grandmother's living in the same house with him. So he calls up the grandmom. The grandmother thinks it's you know the phone. Somebody's on the phone. He calls. He doesn't. She doesn't know it's him. And she says. And he. She gets up and she's real old. And she's getting up there, walking towards the phone. Hello, yes. And, and it's the little boy. He says, Grandma, would you mind getting me a soda? Yeah, thank you for your. Listen, he's indolent. A lazy little boy. It's a funny. It's so funny. But the the illustration is so brilliant. You get it immediately. And that's how some Christians are. They're so spiritually lazy. They want heaven given to them. Heaven's not, you're not going to be given heaven. You want it? Fight for it. You've got to fight for it. Heaven is worth fighting for. But most people aren't. Worth uh, 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 determined to fight for heaven. So she goes on to say, they are unwilling to make exertions, put forth an effort to deny self, to agonize before God, to pray long. By the way, pray long means privately, not when you're in church publicly. Please, some people in church don't know when to stop. And earnestly for the blessing, and therefore they do not what? They don't get it. Because, dear friends, they're just downright spiritually lazy. That faith, which will live through the time of trouble, listen very carefully now. That faith that will live through the time of trouble must be daily in exercise now. 
Those who do not make strong efforts now to exercise persevering faith will be wholly unprepared to exercise that faith which will enable them to stand in the day of trouble. Here, just one little example out of the life of Jacob. And what a minefield of jewels you've got there. Just, uh, uh, just jewel after jewel after jewel. And that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. All right? Now, let's continue on 13 through 15. At this point, at this point, 13 through 15, Paul himself is going to actually mention the life of Abraham as an illustration of someone who overcame. All right? So listen to what he says. This is verse 13 through 15. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. In other words, God was going to uh, guarantee the loan. How did he guarantee it? How did, what did he tell, tell Abraham? Tell you what, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. You're going to have a child. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. To guarantee that the promise will come to pass, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll swear by myself. I am the loan. I'm going to, I'm the down payment. I'm going to guarantee what I said. And remember, two immutable things with God. We're going to read later. One is God cannot lie. You can't get any better than that. Friend, that's like going for a loan to a bank. The bank says, tell you what, I'll use my own money, the bank's money, to guarantee your loan. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. I'll sign it all day long. You know you're getting the money, right? You know you're getting the money. And so God swears by himself there's nothing greater than God. Then he goes on to say this. Saying, this is God's promise to Abraham, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, multiply, and I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, meaning Abraham, he obtained the promise. Stop right there. After he did what? Patiently endured. Well, how long did he have to endure before that promise was fulfilled? All right, now look, I want to show you something. In the life of Abraham, all right, let's look at this. Remember the promise that Paul quotes as was fulfilled to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram, Abraham lies about Sarah, Sarah to Pharaoh. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him and made the covenant relation with him. Now watch this now. This is the time when God made the promise. But that's not when the promise was fulfilled. So please pay attention. God made a promise. Paul says he had to patiently endure before that promise came to pass. So we now know in Genesis chapter 12 that promise was given when he was 75 years old. Then Genesis 15, Abraham pleads for an heir. God comes back and says, tell you what, I'll reconfirm the covenant with you. He tells him, sacrifice the animals, split them in two, we'll make a covenant. Remember, he passed through them. All right? So there he confirmed it with the blood of the animals, typifying what? The blood of Christ. The covenant is ratified. All right? So Genesis 15, he comes back and he says, all right, don't worry. I'll, I'll promise you you'll have a son because that was what he was lamenting over. Genesis 16, Abraham sinned with Hagar. Right? So he mentions this. At this time of his life, Abraham is now 86 years old. Now, please remember, 
Remember, God is, God is continuing the covenant relationship with Abraham, although he's blundering, as you can see from time to time, the poor fella. But he persevered. I'm going to talk about that in a second. By the time he comes down to Genesis 16, he's now 86 years old. So how many years passed by? From Genesis 12 to 16? 11 years. 11 years. Imagine being sentenced to prison for 11 years. So the time you're sentenced to prison, 11 years before you're going to get freedom. That's a long time. One day, believe me, I used to do prison ministry. I wouldn't want to spend a night in there. Quite frankly. 11 years would be unthinkable. But that's not, that's not the end of the story because believe me, he didn't get the promise then. Then we come to Genesis 17. Now remember, he fails in Genesis 16. He commits the sin with Hagar. He doesn't believe God because God promised him in Genesis 15, you will have a son again. He makes that, reaffirms the covenant. So what does he do? He believes him. In Genesis 15, immediately he believes him. Paul in the book of, he, uh, book of Romans talks about this. He believed implicitly in Genesis 15. The problem is he didn't persevere. His wife came to him later and said, you know, we're not having a child. Use Hagar. So he gave in. What was the failure? Why was he circumcised later? To teach him a lesson to learn to live by faith and not by trusting in the flesh to fulfill the promises of God. The problem with Abraham from Genesis 15 to 17 is that Abraham, Abraham didn't persevere. He stopped believing. That's why he failed. Then we come to Genesis, uh, Genesis 17. God reaffirms the covenant. Abraham is circumcised. Abraham's now 99 years old. So now we've got 24 years have passed. And he still has not fulfilled the promise yet. That hasn't come to pass yet. Genesis 20, Abraham lies about Sarah to King Abimelech. He's still 9,900 years old, give or take, right around that period. Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Isaac's 100 years old. Abraham is 100 years old. But notice, in Genesis 22, whoops, accidentally pushed the button. In Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, I want you to offer up Isaac. He tests it. Do you trust me? Now, why did God test him? Because remember, if you look at this uh, uh, example of his life, look, look, he fails in Genesis 15, in 16. He fails. He lies in Genesis 12. Uh, he, uh, um, he lies in Genesis 20. Abraham is like, you know what his Christian life's like? This. Up and down, up and down, up and down. All right? And God has to test him now. And what God is asking Abraham, do you really believe me? Do you really trust me? He says, yes, Lord, I do. Okay, well, since you do say, well, I think the only son that you have, I'm going to sacrifice him. Boy, let me tell you, talk about a shell shock. That put him in the stratosphere of realizing, oh, man, I can't, this is the only child I've got. And you've got to understand something. Abraham was not only aware of the fact that that was the only heir to his, his, um, of, of his realm or his little you know, kingdom that he had, but he also knew that the heir of the promise of the Messiah would come. By killing him, he, killed, he would kill the birth of the coming of the Messiah. All of this is weighing on him. He's weighing heavily what's happening, the loss of his only child. So there in Genesis 22, he's about to offer up Isaac. Just as he's about to plunge the knife, the angel comes and stops him. And there in the thicket of the bush is a ram whose horns got caught accidentally. 
divinely, providentially. Got caught in the thicket, and, uh, and what was God saying to, to Abraham? He was telling Abraham, Abraham, if you will just trust me, if you'll just believe me, I will provide the fulfillment of what I promised. In other words, God was telling Abraham, Abraham, if you'll believe me, the very word in which I speak, I will, I will bring it to pass. I just need you to surrender and trust me. Do you believe that I can keep it? Do you believe I can bring it to pass? And finally, when in Genesis 22, what's interesting, that in Genesis 22, we find Abraham uh, fulfilling the promise. Now, I'm going to read to you a statement. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Uh, um, this, uh, this is from the Spirit of Prophets. I want to read to you. By the way, in Genesis 22, 11, 12, 15, and 18, that's when this text that's quoted in, in Hebrews 6, that was when it came to pass. Now, you think about this, dear friends. From the time that God called Abraham, he was 75, to the time of the fulfillment of the promise, that was when he was 120. How many years went by? 40 Five years. Forty-five. He had to persevere for 45 years to see the fulfillment of the promise. We can't even wait a minute. We are so impatient, so spiritually lazy. We won't even persevere for a day, a week. If we lived a victorious life, a solid for a whole week, I think we would be beside ourselves. Friends, he had to wait 45 years. And let me tell you, he wasn't a spring chicken. This guy was an old man. And uh, yeah, well, that's hard to wait when you're that old. I'm going to read you now something the Sister White says. I want you to listen very carefully to this statement. This, it will knock your socks out. Listen, listen to this. Abraham's unquestioning obedience was one of the most striking instances of faith and reliance upon God to be found in the sacred record. With only the naked promise that his descendants should possess Canaan, without the least outward evidence, he followed on where God should lead, fully and sincerely complying with the conditions on his part and confident that the Lord would faithfully perform his word. The patriarch went wherever God indicated his duty. He passed through the wilderness without terror. He went among idolatrous nations with one thought. Listen to this now. God has spoken. I am obeying his voice. He will guide. He will protect me. 40, page 524. That was the consuming thought. God called me. He promised. He'll bring it to pass. I believe him. I trust him. That's the kind of faith he had, and we need to have the same. Listen to this, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 147. God had called Abraham to be the father of the faithful, and his life was to stand as an example of faith to succeeding generations. Now listen, but his faith, what? Had not been what? Perfect. Oh, now please, you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, he didn't have a perfect faith. Well, if you go from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, you see that his faith wasn't always perfect, was it? You can't be lying and have faith in God. But listen, what kind of faith did he have, though? What kind of faith did Abraham have from the time he was called to the time of the uh, the fulfillment of the prophet? He had a persevering faith. Listen to me. You may not now have a perfect faith. Now, we will eventually have, and Abraham did eventually have a perfect faith. 
But at this present moment, you may not have a perfect faith. The question is, dear friend, do you have a persevering faith? A faith that says, I'm not going to give up. I may have failed. I'm not. I'm going to get up, ask God to forgive me. I'm going to keep pressing forward. Listen, dear friend, that's the key to success. You can't give up. Where are you going to go? Where? You've got you to persevere, friends. You've got to persevere. And then in closing, let's look here, 16 to 20. He says, And men verily or truthfully swear by the greater, an oath for the confirmation is to them the end of all strife. In other words, if two people make an agreement with each other over something, and let's say there's the dispute over this particular object, if there is an, a, 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 um, a confirmation or an, a, a means by which you can ratify the disagreement and settle it, in other words, between the two, what it ends all strife, right? The two parties, and I say, okay, okay, I, I can agree with that. We can settle that and we'll move on. So he's talking about this, uh, this, this strife now coming to an end when there's a confirmation. Notice how it happens. Verse 17. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immobility of his counsel confirmed it. How? By an oath. That the two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before them. Now stop right there. What are the two immutable things with God? One is he cannot lie. What's the other one? He just told you. Is his promises. That's his counsel. That's his word. That's his promises. God's promises cannot lie. They cannot change. They're immutable. When God gives a promise, you can count on it. It will come to pass. Why? Because God, one by one, swore upon himself. There's nothing greater than God. And therefore, he guarantees what he promised. Number two, God cannot lie. Therefore, when he makes a promise, the fact that that's immutable in and of itself, based on the fact that it's promised on God, number two, he can't lie, you know it's coming to pass. The only thing is, dear friends, God never said it would happen today or tomorrow. In some cases, you've got to wait. Listen, when it comes to your salvation, forgiveness of sins, you want to be baptized by the Spirit. You want angels to watch over you. That can happen instantly. You don't have to wait for that. That comes instantly. But for other things in your life, maybe healing or whatever, you may have to wait for that. Are you going to persevere? That's the key. Are you going to persevere? we got to close. Let's keep going here. He says, in the two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or strong confidence who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. What's the hope set before us? The promise that God has given. Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul. What anchors our soul in our Christian walk is the hope that we have in the promise that what God said he's going to do. What else is going to keep you going? Both sure and steadfast, which enters into that within the veil. Now notice he now ties in the high priestly ministry of Jesus in relation to the promises that God gave. Why? Because Jesus is ever interceding in our behalf. And there through the high priestly ministry of Jesus, he will bring to pass the fulfillment of those promises. 
That's why it says, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Paul is talking about the fulfillment of the promise that God has given in Hebrews chapter 6, and he's dealing with the issue of the immobility of God's word, that, dear friends, the anchor to our soul lies within the word of God. It is the word of God. It's what anchors us. It's his promises. Do we believe them? Do we trust them? Will we persevere? That's the key. How many want to say with me, by the grace of God, Lord, help me to persevere. Help me to endure until the end. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you. Please bless us and keep us. I know it's been a long day, but watch over us and help us. Each one to remember what a lovely, uh, uh, kind Savior we serve. Come and take our hearts now. Bless us as we go our separate ways. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.